Turn to 1 Peter chapter 3. 1 Peter chapter 3. In the 4th century, a couple of years ago, the Roman Empress Eudoxia threatened early church father John Chrysostom with banishment if he continued insisting on his Christian independence as a preacher rather than conforming to teach what Rome wanted. Here's what Chrysostom said to that threat. He said, you cannot banish me for this world is my father's house. But I will kill you, said the empress. No, you cannot. For my life is hid with Christ in God, said John. I will take away your treasures. No, you cannot. For my treasure is in heaven and my heart is there. But I will drive you away from your friends and you will have no one left. No, you cannot. For I have a friend in heaven from whom you cannot separate me. I defy you. For there is nothing you can do to harm me. Where did Chrysostom find the courage to say such amazing and bold words? How can you and I have that mindset when we face suffering for Christ? Our text in 1 Peter 3 this morning gives us the answer. So, uh, 1 Peter chapter 3, and we are going to begin at verse 13. If you are using one of the Bibles on the ends of the pews, it is on page 1050. 1 Peter 3, and we're going to read from 1 Peter 3 verse 13 all the way to the end of the chapter. Follow along as I read God's Word for us this morning. And who is he who will harm you if you become followers of what is good. But even if you should suffer for righteousness' sake, you are blessed. And do not be afraid of their threats, nor be troubled. But sanctify the Lord God in your hearts, and always be ready to give a defense to everyone who asks you a reason for the hope that is in you with meekness and fear." having a good conscience, that when they defame you as evildoers, those who revile your good conduct in Christ may be ashamed. For it is better, if it is the will of God, to suffer for doing good than for doing evil. For Christ also suffered once for sins, the just for the unjust, that he might bring us to God being put to death in the flesh, but made alive by the Spirit, by whom also he went and preached to the spirits in prison, who formerly were disobedient when once the divine long-suffering waited in the days of Noah, while the ark was being prepared, in which, that is, eight souls were saved through water. There is also an antitype which now saves us, baptism. Not the removal of the filth of the flesh, but the answer of a good conscience toward God through the resurrection of Jesus Christ, who has gone into heaven and is at the right hand of God, angels and authorities and powers having been made subject to him. Would you join me with a word in a word of prayer as we look at God's word together this morning? Gracious Heavenly Father, this is your word. You have given it to us, and it is profitable It is profitable for doctrine, for reproof, for correction, for instruction in righteousness. So, Father, we come to your word this morning seeking to learn. 
seeking to be instructed by your Holy Spirit. Holy Spirit, please come and work in our hearts. Change us through your word that is quick and powerful and sharper than any two-edged sword. We pray this in your name. Amen. As we approach our text this morning and we think through the idea of imitating Christ in righteous suffering, it's important that we qualify what kind of suffering and persecution Peter has in mind here. He is not talking about suffering in the sense of calamity or physical pain. Peter is not talking about suffering that comes from things not going our way in different social arenas. Peter is not talking about suffering for matters of personal interest, like you have stubborn kids, or you have certain opinions, or there are certain quirks of your personality, and because of those things, there is suffering and affliction that you face. That's not what Peter has in mind here. Instead, Peter is talking about suffering as society's fundamental opposition to the gospel when it is confronted with the truth of the gospel. There's a, there's a clear focus that Peter has on suffering and persecution that Christians are going to go through. And in the culture in which he is writing to, the churches that he is writing to, there is persecution, opposition to the gospel that they are facing. And Peter is writing with that kind of suffering in mind. You might ask, where and when does that happen in our day? We are gathered here this morning and there is no threat of the doors being broken down and authorities coming in and arresting us because we are gathered here to preach the gospel. There are areas of the world, as Pastor Harris prayed for, where that is a real threat. But how are Peter's words to affect us and inform us in the day in which we live? We see this happening in our day over gender and sexuality issues. Over compromise that our world is seeking over God's word. They want to overturn what God clearly states in his word to subvert what God says and and totally change the playing rules. What constitutes marriage is another arena where we face this conflict. Is marriage between one man and one woman like God specifies in his word? Or is it open for however I feel and want to interpret that? Am I able to to set my own rules and standards? The fight over abortion is another area that we see this play out in where God clearly places a priority on life and establishes the taking of life as murder. Having integrity in the workplace. Not being willing to cut corners or pad numbers, but to let truth be truth, to let the numbers be the numbers no matter how good or bad they may be. There's an illustration in Scripture of of workplace integrity. Think of Joseph with me for a second. Here he is, Potiphar's household manager. And he is tempted to compromise his integrity in his job. And he's willing to go to jail to preserve his integrity. That is suffering that we could face in our day. 
A more subtle form is, is suppression of career advancement. You work at your job faithfully and, and tirelessly and you put the time in and you do the job right and it seems like everybody around you is getting promoted and they're getting raises and they're getting all of these accolades and, and you don't because everybody knows you're a Christian. Everybody knows that when certain times of the year come around, you're not going to participate in some of the things that they participate in because you believe they to, them to be wrong. We can even face ostracization from social circles. That is, there could be groups of friends that you may have and there may be an issue where someone says, oh, yeah, I mean, if somebody identifies as as a non-binary person, I I don't necessarily have a problem with that. I think God allows for that type of thing. and, And you step back. You say, I don't believe that's what the Bible teaches believe that when God says he created male and female, he created male and female. And then that awkward silence follows. And next month, there's no invitation to hang out with that group of friends. We face suffering, maybe not in an explicit way like Peter's audience would have, but we do face the opportunity to suffer and to be persecuted for Christ. Well, so far in this letter, we have seen that in Christ we have become the people of God. We have an incorruptible inheritance in Christ that God is preserving for us. And we've seen that on the other side of that coin, that as Christians, Peter calls us to live lives characterized by holiness while abstaining from the old desires and actions that we pursued before we were saved. In other words, there's cause for persecution. So if we follow Peter's guidance in this letter to live godly lives as strangers and pilgrims here, then we will face opposition from those around us who are outside of Christ. And in the midst of that storm of persecution, what serves as the ballast in our boat to encourage us and to motivate us to endure the storms of ridicule and suffering on our journey in this perilous world? How do we survive? What Peter presents to us in our text this morning is that Christ and what he accomplished for us on the cross are the ballast. They are what encourage and motivate us. This is the central message Peter is seeking to equip his audience with in this passage. So as we look at 1 Peter 3, 13-22, the big idea that we see in our text this morning is that just as Christ suffered unjustly and was vindicated by the Father... We as Christians must be willing to suffer unjustly, knowing that we will be vindicated because of Christ's death and resurrection. Let me say that one more time. The big idea that we see in the text is that just as Christ suffered unjustly and was vindicated by the Father, we as Christians must be willing to suffer unjustly, knowing that we will be vindicated because of Christ's death and resurrection. So look with me, if you would, first this morning at the blessing of Christ's suffering. The blessing of Christ's suffering. We see this, uh, Peter works this out for us in verses 13 to 17. He starts in verses 13 and 14 by connecting 13 to 22 with the previous verses that we've looked at uh, before. Verse 13 is, in a sense, a rhetorical question. 
Consider it with me. If, and who is he who will harm you if you become followers of what is good? Put in, in our vernacular, if you're not speeding, why would you be afraid of a policeman on the side of the road clocking people? If you're doing good, you don't have any cause to suffer harm. If you're in the most protected place imaginable, who can harm you if you stay in that protected place? No one. Followers of Christ are safe and secure, but, 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 what, what about... Well, yeah, there, that, that Peter is going to unpack for us in verse 14 that if, even if you should suffer for righteousness' sake. So he's not saying, hey, you're a follower of Christ. You're in a good place. You are bulletproof for the rest of your life. You don't have to worry about anything. It's going to be just wonderfulness between now and when you get to heaven. No, because in the very next verse, in verse 14, he assumes that even if you suffer for righteousness' sake. So there is that expectation of suffering, but ultimately, nothing happens to us. We are safe and secure, preserved by God. Who is he Ultimately, who will harm you if you become followers of what is good? That, that's what the term followers of what is good refers back up to verses 10 through 12. Look at uh, just above in, in 1 Peter 3, 10 through 12. Peter writes, He who would love life and see good days, let him refrain his tongue from evil and his lips from speaking deceit. Let him turn away from evil and do good. Let him seek peace and pursue it. For the eyes of the Lord are on the righteous. Those are the followers of what is good. They are the ones who are eager to do what is good. They are the ones who are seeking and pursuing peace and good. That person has nothing to fear because they are in a place of favor before God. If you could either have the favor of God or the favor of man, which would you choose? And Peter, as he's writing to these churches, he assures them that the favor of God is the position they want to be in. They want to be the ones who are pursuing and doing that which God approves. But if you look at the, in the middle of verse 14, even if you should suffer for righteousness' sake... You are blessed. Look back up at chapter 3, verse 9 with me. Peter admonishes us not to return evil for evil or reviling for reviling, but on the contrary, blessing, knowing that you were called to this, that you may inherit a blessing. This echoes back to Matthew 5, 11, and 12 where Jesus says, Blessed are you when men revile you and persecute you and say all manner of evil against you for my sake. Rejoice and be exceeding glad for great is your reward in heaven. Peter heard those words in person and they stuck with him. It was something that that dominated how he lived his life after Christ's crucifixion. So because suffering for Christ is normal for Christians, we must suffer for Christ well. To suffer for Christ is not drudgery. It is the pathway to being eternally blessed. And we see that here in this passage. One of the things that struck me as I was was studying this passage is 
how Peter models this sentiment for us. If this were a car, Peter has test-driven this car for us. He, it is as if he has driven it and he has said, oh, this is an excellent car. You should make sure that you get this car if you need a car soon. The passage that was read for us this morning in Acts chapter 4 walks through how Peter test-drove this model of suffering. Peter, the one who had before denied Jesus and been afraid of the threats of those who came to arrest Jesus, has become a bold apologist for Christ. He took advantage of sharing Christ whenever possible. As, as I was reading through the book of Acts, because not just Acts 14, but there were other moments in Peter's life that popped into my mind, we see four times in the early life of the church where he could have kept quiet, He could have just been silent, and he speaks up. He speaks up. He speaks up over and over again. Four times in the first five chapters of Acts, Peter is speaking, and he's not just defending himself. He's preaching the gospel. He is giving an answer for the hope that is in him. We read these incredible words in Acts 5, 40-42. The, the, the chief priests, they, they beat him and they send him and, and John away. And we read these words in Acts 5 as they're going away. That they rejoiced that they were counted worthy to suffer for the name of Jesus. That blows my mind. That, that the same Peter who was so fearful and, and cut off that, that soldier's ear in the garden when Jesus was betrayed is the same Peter who's walking away after he's just been beaten up and he's rejoicing? And he's not rejoicing because of how much money he's going to get from suing the religious leaders for unfair treatment. He's rejoicing in the fact that he was counted worthy to suffer for the name of Jesus. He believed it was a privilege to suffer for Christ. Daniel is another person that comes to my mind as someone who, was, who counted it a privilege to suffer for Christ. Remember when, when he is commanded and told that the only person he can pray to and worship is Darius? And what does he do? He goes home and in a not-so-secret way makes it plainly visible that he is not going to do that. And he's praying to his God, to the true God. And he ends up in the lion's den. And he doesn't go kicking and screaming. He doesn't go yelling, I want to call my lawyer. No, he goes counting it a privilege to suffer for Christ. So Peter tells us to sanctify the Lord God in our hearts, to always be ready to give a defense to everyone who asks you a reason for the hope that is in you with meekness and fear. Verse 16 That when they defame you as evildoers, those who revile your good conduct in Christ may be ashamed. And then we come to these interesting words in verse 17. For it is better if it is the will of God to suffer for doing good than for doing evil. How does verse 17 make sense? Why in the world, if I'm doing good, would I want to sign up to suffer? Isn't that the whole point of doing good? The point of doing good is so that I don't have to suffer. How can it be better 
to suffer for doing good than for doing evil. The key is for us to look back at chapter 2, verse 15. Flip back to 1 Peter 2, verse 15. In Peter's instructions to everyone regarding the human institutions that have been placed over everyone, look at what he says in verse 15. 1 Peter 2.15, For this is the will of God. You see the parallel? In, in 3.17, it's better if it's the will of God. 2.15, it is better, for this is the will of God, that by doing good you may put to silence the ignorance of foolish men. So we go back to 3.17. How is it better if it's the will of God to suffer for doing good than for doing evil? First off, it's the will of God. Can't go wrong with following what God's will for you is. But secondly, this verse shows us that it is better to suffer for doing good. Why? Because is it better to lose the favor of God? Is it better to to go and do evil and to have the face of the Lord turned against you for for His ears to not be open to your prayers? Or is it better to suffer for doing that which is good? Well, ultimately, if we think of the long view, it is better for us to suffer for doing good if that is the will of God. If, if we're in that most safe and secure place, who is he that will harm us? Therefore, it is better if it is the will of God to suffer for doing good than for doing evil. Peter here is encouraging his audience. Hey, don't lose heart. There's a purpose in this. You are safe in this suffering. You are secure in this suffering. And nothing will happen to you as a result of the suffering. God's not going to say, whoops, sorry. He's got you. So as we look at verses 13 to 17, the question needs to be asked, how do we suffer in a way that is distinctly Christian? How do we suffer in a way that is distinctly Christian? We see at the beginning, or I'm sorry, at the end of verse 14, where Peter says, do not be afraid of their threats or be troubled. This is a quote back to Isaiah chapter 8, which Peter has already quoted once or twice here in Peter. Don't be afraid of persecutors and their maligning. If you're in the minority, don't be afraid of the power of the majority because you're on the right side. You are with Christ. Do not be afraid of their threats or be troubled. Why? Philippians 128 gives us some insight because by you not being afraid, it is a clear sign to them of their destruction. When we suffer for that which is good and we're not afraid, we're not, we're not trembling, we're not like, oh no, what's going to happen to me? That really gets on the nerves of unbelievers. They want to get to us. They want to unsettle us. It is Satan's desire to unsettle us from the safety and security that we have in Christ. So when we are not fearful of what they're going to do, it it unnerves them. 
So brothers and sisters, we can suffer in a way that is distinctly Christian by not being afraid of persecutors and their maligning. The second thing we see is in verse 15, to set God apart in our hearts. The idea has there that we would fear Him. At the end of verse 15, we are told to sanctify the Lord God in our hearts with meekness and fear. That fear is not fear of man. That fear is fear of God. As we've seen other places throughout First Peter, when, first, when Peter tells us that we ought to fear, he is not telling us to fear man. He is, he is calling us to fear God. So we are to set God in our hearts. We are to set Him apart. Because He is totally in control. He's completely in control. You're in the safest and most securest place in the world. Why would you move? Why wouldn't I set him apart in my heart? The second part of verse 15, we are to be ready to give an answer to those who ask about the hope we have in Christ. Well, this implies that Christianity is defendable. This implies that we're not just believing myths and fairy tales and cleverly devised Fables, hey, Peter says that in Second Peter 1, but we are believing that which we have seen and heard. Christianity isn't a deep, dark secret. It's, it's something that is rational and is defendable. And so we, as followers of Christ, ought to be able to defend that. Not, not in a sense that, that we are, have to have doctorates in apologetics, but we ought to give an answer to those who ask. And we ought to be able to answer them with gentleness and courteousness. That's, that's the idea behind that meekness that we see in verse 15. That it's not hateful. It's not vengeful. It's not filled with selfish ambitions or ideas. But that we are answering them courteously and respectfully and gently. Again, Peter exemplifies this. Does he say uncomfortable words? Yes, but he never once is disrespectful. He never once crosses the line into just straight-up meanness. He does not diminish or demean the human institution of the high priest or the judge. He preaches the gospel. We ought to give witness in word and action in such a way that when believers seek to defame or revile us, we see this in verse 16, when they defame us as evildoers, those who revile your good conduct in Christ may be ashamed. It's possible here that Peter doesn't just have the present world in view, but he also has the final day of judgment in view. It may or may not be that as we are persecuted now on this earth that those who defame us are ashamed. But on the last day, when everyone is compelled to kneel and affirm that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of God the Father, they will be ashamed. Because it's better if it's the will of God to suffer for doing good than for doing evil. So, some application for us as we consider the blessing of Christ's suffering. Is suffering for Christ something you wouldn't want to touch with a 10-foot pole? You just stay away from that. You know, Fox's Fox's Book of Martyrs is a great book, but I don't want to end up in it. 
Do you and I truly believe that suffering for Christ is a good thing? How prepared are you to give a defense for what you believe about Christ and what he has done for you in salvation? Every Christian who has hope ought to be able to give an answer to someone who asks about that hope. And again, this doesn't mean that that you have to be an an expert or even an apologist, but that we are able to contend for the truth in the world. Are you prepared to give a defense for what you believe about Christ and what he has done for you in salvation? The third application for us from this, from, the, from this section, do you believe that in Christ you are in the most secure place in the world? So what are we afraid of? Are we afraid of rejection? Are we afraid of being ostracized by our friends? Afraid of beatings? Are we afraid of death? Peter then asks the question, why should we be willing to suffer? Why is that something that, that isn't just good because it's the will of God, but why is it something that, that, we should, that we should pursue? So not only do we see the blessing of Christ's suffering, secondly, we see the application of Christ's suffering. We see this in verses 18 through 22. Verse 18 begins with the word for. We could translate the word for uh, uh, maybe because. Because Christ also suffered. And what that word for is there for is it helps connect verse 17 to verse 18. So, why is it better if it's the will of God to suffer for doing what is good? For. Because Christ suffered once for sins. He suffered unjustly, and he is blessed. So therefore, when we suffer unjustly for the sake of Christ, we share in that blessing. Now this section is one of the most confusing sections in Scripture. Martin Luther said, and he he did not lack opinion on much of anything, but here's what he said about this text, verses 18 through 22. He said, This is a strange text and certainly a more obscure passage than any other passage in the New Testament. I still do not know for sure what the apostle meant. So as we come not just to verse 18, beyond verse 18, into what we will see in verses 19, 20, 21, and 22... There's a lot of obscurity. There's a lot of gray area, but there is one idea that Peter is trying to communicate here that is absolutely clear. Because of the death and resurrection of Jesus Christ, we are saved and get to experience the joy of being in God's presence. The death and resurrection of Christ makes suffering for Him worth it. That is what Peter wants us to see from verses 18 through 22. Verse 18 gives us so much to meditate on. Consider these truths. Christ suffered once for sins. Think of the irony of Christ suffering once for sins and Him calling us then to suffer for His sake for doing that which is good. 
He, the just one, suffered for those who were unjust. He took the place that we were supposed to be. We were supposed to be there. And He suffered for us, the just for the unjust. He suffered in our place. Why? The text tells us in verse 18, that so that He might bring us to God. What incredible truth there. That Christ suffered once for sins. He doesn't need to suffer anymore. He suffered all that needs to be suffered for sins once. And He did it as a just person. He did it for those of us who are unjust. And He did all of that so that we might be brought to God through Christ. So that we would have access to God through Jesus Christ. The remainder of verse 18 shows us the contrast of His death. We see being put to death in the flesh, but made alive by the Spirit. We see the contrast of His death and His resurrection. If you're reading out of ESV, your translation will say something like that He was put to death in the flesh, but made alive in the Spirit. The New King James says that He was put to death in the flesh, but made alive by the Spirit. Why the difference there? Well, this is, this is kind of the shallow end of the pool of this passage. There's difference of opinion over whether the two phrases are parallel in meaning or distinct in meaning. That is to say, are they both referring to the same thing? Are, are they referring to the same sphere that he was put to death in the sphere of the flesh and made alive in the sphere of the spirit or in the spiritual realm? Or, as the New King James translates, is he put to death with reference to the flesh, he's in the flesh and put to death in the flesh, and made alive by or through the agency of the Holy Spirit. I side with the New King James translation in in agreeing with the fact that he was put to death with reference to the flesh and was made alive through the agency by the Spirit. He died with reference to the flesh and was made alive by the Spirit. So before we get to verses 19-21, through consider the ultimate victory of Christ that we see in verse 22. The one who suffered once for sins, the just for the unjust. He he did all of that to bring us to God. Look in verse 22. He has gone into heaven and is at the right hand of God. He is at the right hand of God. That is, he is is in a position of power and favor. And we read the angels, authorities, and powers have been subjected to him. So brothers and sisters, we serve the one who has triumphed in his resurrection over all of creation. He has been vindicated. And his vindication will be ours if we endure. 
So now we come to verses 19 through 21. And there are three key questions that we need to ask when it comes to trying to make sense of what in the world is going on in verses in verse 19 and 20. First question, who are the spirits in prison? Second question, why did Christ preach or proclaim to them? Third question, when did he preach or proclaim to them? Depending on how we answer those questions, verse 20 provides additional information for us to understand what is taking place in verse 19. So, as we seek to make sense of verses 19 and 20, there are faithful Christians who disagree on what verses 19 and 20 mean. Even Martin Luther is uncertain of what this passage is clearly talking about. And if you want to discuss this passage after the service with me, you are more than welcome to. I would love to talk through this passage in deeper detail and talk about maybe some of the other views that you have heard about what this passage means. But I'm running out of time real fast because this clock has been put like on twice as fast mode and it's a race against time. So for the sake of time and I also want to keep Peter's emphasis on the text. He doesn't provide three chapters of commentary on what he means in verses 19 and 20. He keeps right on moving. And so to keep with his emphasis, I don't want to imbalance our look at the text this morning. So here, let me, let me show you from the text what I believe Peter is saying in the text here. I believe the text is teaching that Christ went and preached to evil angels after his resurrection. This view of the text describes Christ's proclamation of victory and judgment over the evil angels. These evil angels that are referenced in verse 20 are those that we read about in Genesis 6, 1-4, where they crossed God's boundary. They went down to earth. They had sexual relations with women. And as a result, they are imprisoned for their sin. And we see this picked up in Second Peter 2, 4 and 5, where Peter writes, For if God did not spare the angels who sinned, but cast them down to hell and delivered them into chains of darkness to be reserved for judgment, and did not spare the ancient world, but saved Noah, one of eight people, a preacher, a preacher of righteousness. We, we see the connection between the angels who were cast down into chains of darkness and Noah. We also see a connection here with Jude 6, which says, And the angels who did not keep their proper domain, but left their own abode, he has reserved in everlasting chains under darkness for the judgment of the great day. So I believe... The view that Christ went and preached to evil angels after his resurrection makes the most sense given the context of the passage. And let me give you six reasons why I believe that. First, I think it fits the context of Christ's vindication and resurrection in verses 18 and 22. What does he have to preach otherwise? He's not giving men a second chance at repentance. It does justice to the fact that we read in verse 19, by whom also he went. He didn't like pre-go before he went. He, he went. And actually what's interesting is the went in verse 19 is the same verb as verse 22 when he's gone up into heaven. So I see a parallel idea that in verse 19, he went and preached to the evil spirits and he went and he's gone up into heaven and he's seated at the right hand of the Father. It does justice to the fact that he has been made alive by the Spirit. 
That seems to indicate that what's taking place in verse 19 happened post-resurrection. We read in verse 19 that he went and preached to the spirits in prison. One of the, one of the interesting tidbits is that that word spirits in its plural form here in the text almost always refers to angelic beings, not humans. We don't find a plural form of spirits referencing humans, nor almost always they are referring to angelic beings. The word prison that is used in verse 19, that they were, he preached to the spirits in prison. Prison is never used to refer to the place of punishment for humans post-death. That's not where God sends people. He doesn't send them to prison. There are other words in our New Testament and Old Testament that are used to describe where Jesus sends humans to the place of punishment post-death, like Gehenna, like the grave, like Sheol. This is not one of those words. The sixth reason is that this interpretation encourages believers to suffer for Christ because he has been vindicated and triumphant over sin in the grave. I don't believe other interpretations are as helpful to Peter's point that they advance and drive home that point as forcefully or as naturally in the text. So we could paraphrase verses, uh, verses 18 through 20 perhaps this way with, with that understanding in view. That Christ, the righteous one, suffered once for sins, for the sins of the unjust, that's you and I, in order to give us access to God, being put to death in reference to the flesh, but made alive by the agency of the Spirit. He went by the Spirit and proclaimed victory over death and hell to the vilest of the fallen angels in prison who violated God's commands even though God was patient with them in the days of Noah leading up to the flood, where eight and only eight were saved through water. So that's verses 19 and 20. And then we come to verse 21. And verse 21 is is perplexing because we read these words. There's also an antitype which now saves us baptism. I was telling Pastor Harris this week, there were several times as I was working through this text and wrestling with this text where I was like, Peter, you're the one who said that what Paul had to write was confusing. Are you kidding me right now? We come to verse 21. There is now an antitype which now saves us baptism. So here's the key question with verse 21. In what way is baptism comparable to the ark? Peter tells us in the beginning of verse 21, it is what saved us. Like Noah and his family were saved with water. But if we take that at face value, that is unsatisfactory and straight up heretical. I mean, if I advance that view, I will be tackled and taken off of this pulpit quicker than you can say reformation. It will not go well. That is not what Peter is saying here. Baptism does not save us. The key is to notice the parallel in verses 20 and 21. On the one hand... Noah and his family were saved through water. Where in verse 20 do we see through? It's 
at the end of the verse. Through the resurrection of Jesus Christ. So there's the parallel ideas. We are saved through the resurrection of Jesus Christ like Noah was saved through water. But there's still that tie between the ark and baptism. In what way then does baptism function in the same pattern as the ark in saving? The waters of the flood deluged the ancient world and were the agent of death. Similarly, baptism, which was by immersion during the time of the New Testament, occurs when one is plunged under the water. If you're plunged under the water for an extended period of time, we all know what happens. You die. Submersion under the water represents death. And Paul suggests this in Romans 6, 3-5. He says, Do you not know that as many of us were baptized into Christ, Jesus were baptized into his death? Jesus described his upcoming death in terms of baptism. Mark 10, 38 and 39 says this, But Jesus said to them, You do not know what you ask. Are you able to drink the cup that I drink and be baptized with the baptism that I am baptized with? So his description of his upcoming death in terms of baptism are now applicable just as the chaotic waters of the flood were the agent of destruction, so too the waters of baptism are waters of destruction. In New Testament theology, however, and, and, and this is uh, something that I found super helpful from a commentator that I read this week. In New Testament theology, however, believers survive the death-dealing baptismal waters because they are baptized not by themselves, but they are baptized with Christ. They are rescued from death through His resurrection. Hence, we are not surprised to read in this verse that baptism saves by or through the resurrection of Jesus Christ. The waters of baptism, like the waters of the flood, demonstrate that destruction is at hand. But believers are rescued from these waters and that they are baptized with Christ, who has also emerged from the waters of death through His resurrection. Just as Noah was delivered through the stormy waters of the flood through the ark, believers have been saved through the stormy waters of baptism by virtue of Christ's triumph over death through his resurrection. So we could understand verse 21 to say something like this. Baptism, which saves us through Christ's resurrection, is also analogous to the water in Noah's day. Not that it removes the stain of sin from us or contains saving power, but serves as the appeal to God for a good conscience on the grounds of Christ's finished work. That's what he says at the end of verse 21. And he, and he clarifies in that, in that parenthetical that, that there's an antitype which now saves us. Baptism, not the removal of the filth of the flesh, but the answer or the appeal or the, or the hope of a good conscience toward God through the resurrection of Jesus Christ. So all of this brings us full circle back to the main point of 1 Peter 3, 18-22, which is that the crucified Christ is now a vindicated, victorious Christ. We have 
come full circle from where Peter started in chapter 1, 3 through 5. Go back to 1 Peter 1 and look with me at verses 3 through 5. Notice how it, it strangely sounds like 3, 18 to 22. Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, who according to His abundant mercy has begotten us again to a living hope And there's the phrase, through the resurrection of Jesus Christ from the dead. To an inheritance incorruptible and undefiled that does not fade away, reserved in heaven for you. Why can it be in heaven reserved for me? Because that's where Christ is at right now. You who are kept by the power of God through faith for salvation ready to be revealed in the last time. The inheritance we have and are waiting to fully realize is eternal fellowship with God. The the source of all joy and kindness and mercy. Through Christ we have this hope. And that is the hope that is worth being persecuted for. Brother and sister in Christ, that is what would compel Peter to rejoice that he was counted worthy to suffer for Christ. So how is 1 Peter 3, 18-22 good news for us today? This application of Christ's suffering, how is that good news for us today? Well, the vindication of Jesus is completed. Newsflash, breaking news, Christ has been vindicated. The mission of giving us access to God and taking our sins has been completed and Jesus is victorious over all. Let that sink in. Is there better news for you and I than that? That is better than than any election results, any PlayStation or Xbox availability. That is better than returning to pre-COVID life. That is better than making the team or getting the promotion. Brothers and sisters, that is the best good news in the world. Are you awed regularly by that incredible news? Does that perpetually and regularly knock you off your feet? When you're going through suffering for Christ's sake, this is the ballast that anchors you. Peter Peter doesn't just want us to sit in awe of this incredible news. No, this is not just something that like, wow, that's really cool. Okay. Okay. He wants it to fortify us and reinforce us in the day of suffering. So it's okay to be marginalized in your friend's circle for for standing up what's right. Why? Because the vindication of Jesus is completed. It's okay to stand for the truth that God made only men and women. Why? Because the vindication of Jesus is completed. It's okay to faithfully and respectfully work your job for 30 years and never get a promotion because you aren't willing to compromise your Christian integrity. Why? Because the vindication of Jesus is completed. So brothers and sisters, using wisdom and discernment, it is good for us to stand for that which Jesus came to secure through His death and resurrection. So brothers and sisters in Christ, let's stand. Let us stand firm. Or as Paul put it, having done all to stand, stand. 
Three general applications. What Peter calls Christians to in this text is to live out the realities of the whole letter. As sojourners and pilgrims, our primary duty is to stand for the values of our home country, not the country we abide in now in this life. So we must be careful to follow the Word and what it says rather than to do what we want and make the Word follow what we say. What we stand for must be those things that are clearly given to us by God in His Word. Second, I know Pastor Harris said this was not a Christmas message. This is a Christmas message because consider the Advent season and Christmas that's less than two weeks away. Without Advent, where would we be? How would that vindication be going? The plan of God, even all the way back to the garden, was to send Christ to die for our sins, the just for the unjust, that He might bring us to God. That we might trust in Him for salvation. Friend, this passage presents for us what Christ has done for those who trust in Him. Have you trusted in Christ for salvation this morning? Has He taken your sin as the only just person? Has He taken your sin as an unjust person and granted you access to God? He can. He wants to. You can trust in Him alone for salvation today. Let me encourage you, if you have questions about what that means to trust in Christ for salvation, to talk to Pastor Harris after the service. He would be glad to help you and walk you through what the Bible teaches about how how you can have Christ, the just one, take your sins as an unjust person. Brother and sister in Christ, this passage gives us ample cause to rejoice this Christmas season. Because it's not just the fact that there's a cute baby laying in a manger with farm animals around and Mary and Joseph and they're all sitting there so peacefully and quietly. It's the fact that Christ came and He came so that He could obey and His obedience would would be so much better than our obedience. As a matter of fact, it would be perfect. And He would die, not a victim to death, but that He would rise again triumphant over death. So how can we like Peter, like the believers Peter is writing to, like John Chrysostom, suffer well for Christ's sake? How can we have the courage to stand in the face of persecution? By imitating Christ in righteous suffering. So may God give us grace to follow Christ through suffering and persecution as we await the end of our faith, the salvation of our souls. Let us pray. Father, we are so undeserving of what you have done for us in Christ. You, the just and righteous one, gave yourself for us. And you've been vindicated. You are triumphant. Thank you that right now you are sitting at the right hand of God. You are not in any danger of being supplanted or replaced. Thank you that angels and authorities and powers have been subjected to you. You rule over all.
May we have strength from this text through the power of your Holy Spirit to stand for you in the midst of suffering and persecution. We pray this in your name. Amen.